0: hey guys welcome to peak performance practices brought to you by take flight this is a new podcast that will complement the typical long form guest feature take flight episodes sometime last year i found myself questioning the long-term impact take flight might have and while i hope the interview episodes do provide long-term inspiration as well as life-changing advice both from my shared experiences and the amazing guest stories i wanted to do more This new podcast will provide guided sessions of some of the practices we've discussed on the podcast, delivered by myself and other experts in their field. No longer will you wait for the podcast to finish before taking action. You'll be acting in the moment while listening. You can expect to be introduced to coaching sessions, guided meditation and breath work, as well as other personal development practices designed to make you healthier, happier and more fulfilled. We'll also explain the benefits and oftentimes the science behind why these practices are important to incorporate into our regular routines. Before we start, I want to say a massive thanks to you for continuing to listen, but more importantly, continuing to want to better yourself. I encourage you to keep searching for the answers to life's big questions, and I wish you all the very best on this incredible journey we're all experiencing. I also look forward to hearing stories from those of you realising your full potential, whatever that may be, and I hope these practices go some way towards helping you cultivate a routine that works for you, and possibly even assist in you discovering your own purpose. Either way, it's such a pleasure to be a part of it. Without further ado, please enjoy this Peak Performance Practices session. Feel free to listen back to this any time you want to revisit this practice. Russell, (laughs) welcome to the Take Flight podcast.
1: Hey, I'm excited, man
0: i'm so excited listen let me just do a really um quick intro um sure. so uh should, sorry wait one second i just think the video recording just stopped um
1: maybe it doesn't like me
0: no it does it definitely does it definitely does
1: check my hair do it okay perfect.
0: perfect yeah okay yeah it did stop All i've right, started again cool um sorry we'll go again Sure. Russell, welcome to the Take Flight podcast.
1: Hey, I'm excited.
0: Me too. Lot, look, we met on Clubhouse, like yeah. so many people that I've, I've recently met who are amazing. You're one of those amazing people that I've recently connected with. And, and this episode of Take Flight is what I call the peak performance practices episode, which usually entails having an expert like yourself deliver a guided session. But I'm changing that slightly for this episode because a lot of the stuff we've done in the past, be it breathwork, meditation, coaching sessions is a great way to alleviate stress and other things that we suffer with, but we haven't ever really addressed or defined what some of these things are that we we deal with in our life. So after speaking with you and, and, and kind of getting to know you, and then we spoke on the phone and we could have gone on for hours. (laughs) Um, I was desperate to have a conversation with you uh, about all the fantastic work that you've been doing. So, I suppose, a little opener, if you could just give us a, a, a sort of top line of what you do with people and kind of what your, your week looks like, and then we'll, we'll get into the, the juicier stuff.
1: Yeah, I take, uh, I take people for about 90 minutes, 90 to 125 minutes, and we go into their history, we go into their past, into their childhood, sometimes maybe a little bit about their birth, sometimes a little bit about their family history. You know, what kind of things run in your family? Does suicide run in your family? Does depression run in your family? Um, does cancer run in your family? So I get a feel, and because I've been a medical intuitive for a long time. So my little gift is that I kind of see inside of people and I can see where their blocks are. Because we all, we all love ourselves. But as we grow older, we develop these experiences that cause us not to love ourselves. And when we block love, that's when anxiety starts taking us over. So my kind of superpower is to be able to say, Hey, I can see we, that you were abused from the time you were seven to you were about 12. And I do this on clubhouse. You probably heard me do that. And how can we resolve that? How can we bring it up to the surface and then resolve it through your body as opposed to just your mind? Because I think that's one of the problems we have in our societies. We think that the mind can solve the problems of the, of the feelings. And it's, It doesn't happen that way. You need to use the body to to resolve feelings. So what I do is I see where people are blocked to loving themselves. And then we start, you know, pulling the stops out to that love and allow that love to come back in because what isn't love is is fear. And if you don't, if you can't allow love in for yourself, gradually your life's going to fill up with fear. So by the time you're, excuse me, like 20s, late 20s, early 30s, 40s, you got your first divorce under your belt. You know, things are starting to not go so well because these defensive accommodations that you created when you were younger, these coping strategies stop working around that age. And then so I show people where those coping strategies are. And how to remove them. Because nobody goes into a nursery and goes, oh, that baby over there, that baby's a narcissist. That baby over there, that baby's got borderline personality disorder. No, it's not. We, we develop these coping strategies to get our needs met in maybe a destructive way if we don't get them met in a constructive way. And depending on how you were raised, you know, if, if your parent really wasn't attuned to you that well, you didn't get your, your needs met as a child in a very constructive way adaptive attached way you will find ways being manipulative maybe lying finding addictions to get your needs met so what i do is i find where people's needs are i find where they're blocking love for themselves and then we just sort of say well this is this is where that is and so many times i hear people you know they say like i've learned more from you in the last 90 minutes than i have in the last 10 years of therapy Because that's my gift is being able to see that. And that's one of the reasons I got out of allopathic medicine is because I could see these issues with people when they came into my office. But I can't, if I see someone who say was abused by their dad when they were younger, like beaten or whatever, and I see that in my little intuitive mind, I can't bring that up in a seven to 10 minute visit. I I can't deal with that in seven. So eventually I kind of burned out. I do this. Now I do it on my, my own. I just sort of take people. And I, and I have a chance to spend like 90 minutes with someone and really get to show them where their blocks are. And I call it, I have one more little thing. I know that I, I tend to ramble, but I have one little thing. I call it jabs, taking jabs at yourself, which is basically judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. So when we go into troubles, when we have traumas as children, there's this saying that says, you know, if you abandon, mistreat, or abuse a child, the child doesn't stop loving the parent. They stop loving themselves and all anxiety is separation anxiety all anxiety is separation but it's mostly separation from yourself so when you judge alienate and blame and shame yourself you can't be you can't be together enough to be able to hold that container that that holds love for yourself that allows you to assuage that fear that comes in because we need that we need that level of love for ourselves which we are losing very quickly in society to be able to, to block out the fear or at least be able to soothe ourselves when these, you know, challenging situations come up like COVID or, you know, cancer or divorce or all these kind of things. If you, didn't, if you weren't taught that as a child, you're going to collapse. And my work is basically showing people that they don't have to collapse no matter how much you've collapsed in the past. Sometimes it's a very easy option just to sort of say, hey, have you ever thought about how you judge yourself in this manner? You know, and can we show you ways that you stop doing that? And that's basically kind of what my superpower is. And I wrote a book called Anxiety Rx based on my own life with anxiety. I'm not talking from a guy who's like, hey, I'm an ivory tower. I mean, I know I've got background in developmental psychology and neuroscience and I've got a doctorate in medicine. But I come from a guy who grew up with a father who was schizophrenic. The house was chaotic a lot of the time. So I developed an anxiety disorder myself. I I saw so many different therapists, so many from like high level psychiatrists to like shamanic jungle energy healers. And nothing really seemed to help me. They they helped me get better completely. So I had to I had to fix myself. So that's a very long introduction for you Mark. You asked for, you know, like what do I do during the week and it's like I went off.
0: <laughs> no, I love it. Look, I have so many questions already from what you've said and you know particularly the jabs the acronym yeah. that hit me right in the chest uh I, I really felt that and i i believe really strongly that people come into your life at the right time and i've just started working with a great coach and starting to wrap my head around some of this stuff and i feel like i'm in within touching distance and and i'm feeling like you're the person who can make me put the sort of final pieces together um but just quickly and, and very briefly before we get, again get into the more important stuff that I really want to convey in this episode let's be honest you you went down the traditional path of education and psychiatry first um as you were saying there you had you were having clinics and sessions with people for five seven minutes and that's you know how can you really impact someone then um as magic as you are as a healer <laughs> um but could, could you just talk a little bit about the transition from from that into the more holistic style that you're doing now
1: yeah sure so i i didn't train in psychiatry so I, I i trained as a general sort of family doctor but i've always had this real interest in anxiety
0: so Not like a some, gp over here like yeah, exactly
1: doctor. exactly okay. but i sub specialize in this area of anxiety because you teach what you most have to learn and i had to figure out a way of, of healing my own you know crippling anxiety which at points was you know i was suicidal and i'm happy to talk about that so it was one of those things where I just felt that the traditional medical model basically threw a lot of medications at people who were suffering, and there were there's there's two different types there's suffering that basically people need medications for like there's, they've had so much trauma, and they really do need medications at least initially, and there's other traumas that people could probably work through, and I guess that was one of my frustrations was. I don't want to just hand this person a prescription for Zoloft or Ciprolex or Busperone or whatever. I want them to be able to see, because I can see, I can see where their, where their block is. And can we work on this? Can we, can we help you fix the, the root of the problem rather than giving you a medication that just numbs you? Because I was on those type of medications off and on for 25 years and they, uh, they screw up a lot. They, I would sweat. You know, it causes this tremendous amount of sexual dysfunction in a lot of people. And my joke is that, you know, if, if you think you're anxious or depressed before antidepressants, wait till you can't have an orgasm. You know, that'll really, that, that really sort of takes you down a few pegs. So it was one of those things. So I was, in, I was trained in this medical model, but my, my consciousness just didn't, I didn't allow, it didn't allow me to kind of go, this isn't really what I should be doing it was help you know it would help people get out of the immediate hold that they were in and my problem wasn't so much with when the antidepressants worked or didn't work it's when they worked because a lot of times people would come in and i would see that this was healable what they came in to see me about was fixable and uh, i would give them a medication And then that would drop their symptoms from say, you know, a seven out of 10. If, if 10 is the worst you felt and zero is the best, zero is the best. If 10 is the most pain, if they drop you down to like a five, if I drop your pain down a couple of points, people would just carry on. Like they Mm -hmm. wouldn't feel any need to go back and, and, and heal the underlying problem. And I could see that the underlying problem was healable. At the time, I didn't really know how to do that as a GP, but over the last seven years or so, I've really developed a program and developed a a process that I use to help people uncover this stuff. So it became this sort of crisis of conscience. I I, I love being a doctor in many ways, but I also saw that they were very heavily laden on the pharmaceutical model. And there's no faster way of ending a prescription than just, you know, writing or ending uh, an interview than just handing the person a prescription. You know, Mm -hmm. here you go. I'll see you next Thursday. So I had to figure a ways to to heal myself first and then I transpose those onto to other people. So I, I started off in the allopathic system. I love my training, I love being a scientist. Um but there's places where we really need the art of medicine more than the science these days.
0: Hmm. Yeah, wow. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm in the process of filming a campaign for mental health awareness week. It's over here in the UK in May. And it's interesting to look at some of the statistics around Well, firstly, how many people suffer, but how many people are just prescribed psychiatric medication to kind of, it's it's, it's the sand over the bullet wound analogy, isn't it? And it just, it never goes away.
1: And it's it's how we're trained too. It's how medical doctors are trained. Um, I've adopted a real somatic approach to trauma, to old healing old trauma, which we're never trained even close to in medical school. Even psychiatrists really aren't trained in the somatic model at all, which is starting to show real promise in healing old trauma. Adding in the psychedelics as well, so I think that's where psychiatry is going to be going in the next five or ten years is more towards the psychedelics and more towards this sort of somatic base and finding the root of the trauma in the body because you know the body is a representation of the unconscious mind, and you can find trauma in the body and and, and that's a lot of what I do is I find where people you know if they were abused you know by their dad or whatever it's like. Well, let's just see, where do you feel that in your body? Like check between your chin and your pubic bone and just see if there's an area there that kind of lights up for you. Kind of like a breakup, like a heartache kind of thing. And and people will find and localize that energy. And then we can work with that. Whereas if you just kind of go, yeah, I was beaten by my father. I wasn't beaten by my father, by the way. I, I use that analogy a lot today. But but yeah, I was beaten by my father. I understand he had problems. You know, understanding things from a cognitive conscious viewpoint Mm-hmm. It's assumed. It's assumed in traditional therapy, talk therapy, that if you all of a sudden understand the reason why, that er, the the Jenga pieces are just going to ch- 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 together, and you're going to be fine. And off, and that's not the case. I think what you need to do is you need to heal from both the mind perspective. So I'm not against CBT or talk therapy, absolutely not. But but you need to introduce the somatic thing. It's like going into the ring with a as a, 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 a prize fighter. You know, you're you're fighting the fight of your life. But they're saying okay well you can only you can only you can only use one hand you know it's like you can only use the the mind to fix this it's like well i want to use the body too it's like no 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 we don't believe in that stuff we you know you can only fight this guy with one hand so it the analogy i draw is like why not use both hands why not use the somatic side and the cognitive side because clearly the cognitive side isn't working that well a lot of cbt which is the gold standard for anxiety works absolutely but it wears off you know after about a year that cbt people tend to drift back to their old um their old programs that are in their system Mm -hmm. which makes sense you know because if these systems are put into you when you're an impressionable child just cognitive therapy one of the things i like saying is know, you can't heal a feeling problem with a thinking solution because you really need to get into the same room With what they call that implicit memory, that body memory. You know, if you were abused as a child, that forms an implicit body memory. It's very difficult to talk to that that memory and get into the same room with it. Whereas if you go in through the body where it feels it, you get into the same area and you can kind of manipulate it a lot more. And then using talk therapy on top of that, that's usually what provides you with the best relief. At least that's what helped me.
0: Hmm. I've had CBT three times actually. Um Yeah what would you say is the difference in the practice that you do with people from a CBT perspective? You yeah. know, when people go in and when they're talking about this and they're people are trying to reframe the way they've seen things and make them right. think more positively, right? That's CBT. What's the somatic approach? What are you actually doing with people?
1: I, I sort of regulate them in their body. I find where their alarm is. So say if you came in to see me, I go, Mark, okay, let's just talk for a while. And as I talk to people, I kind of read them.
0: Do you want to and do then, it? Do you want to try it?
1: If you want sure. I'm happy to do it. Sure. It's like a short okay. one. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take you through a short process. Okay. okay. So what I want you to do is just uh, put your butt in the chair, you know, mm-hmm. feel your butt in the chair, put your feet flat on the ground. If you've got slip-off shoes, just slip them off and just put your feet flat on the ground. You know, drop your shoulders, relax your jaw, wiggle your jaw back and forth a bit. And then just uh, like a deep breath in and out. And then take a deep breath in. And then purse your lips this time and then blow your your wind out really slowly. Like, so feel a little resistance as you push it out. And then one more. Take a real deep breath and purse your lips and have a little resistance as you blow it out. And just do one more of those and just imagine that you've got a balloon and you're just slowly letting the air out of the balloon. Your shoulders are dropping, your jaw's relaxing. And I'm going to get you to do one more. This time I'm going to get you to make a sound. So as you breathe in, deep breath. As you breathe out, just imagine that balloon just deflating. Okay, keep your eyes closed for me for a second. Now, I want you to bring to mind a trauma from your childhood, not a huge trauma, like just pick something that bothers you, or it could even be something recent. So you don't have to tell me what it is, but just sort of bring it to mind and just tell me when you've kind of got a bodily sensation of that that traumatic event, that embarrassment or that feeling of pain. Yeah. So where would you feel that? Where does that sort of show up for you? I'm kind of feeling
0: it two places. Okay, good. Um, the first one's here. Okay.
1: And then here, in my chest here. In your chest, okay. So put your right hand over your chest, that place where you feel it, and just start doing some circles, some clockwise circles with your chest. And I really want you to feel your own compassionate, connected touch. And that place in your chest that you feel i want you to imagine that's you as a as a boy so adult mark now is in touch with boy mark did you have a nickname when you were little just mark just mark okay so i really want you to feel like you're getting in touch with him at this point where he feels this trauma And that place that you feel it in your chest, would it be like well circumscribed like a potato or would it be diffused like a jellyfish or neither? It's hard. It's kind of numb feeling. Okay. Yeah. That's great. Does it radiate anywhere? Does it go into your back, up into your throat, down into your belly? Coming into here, into my belly. It's your belly. Okay. And it would it have a temperature? Like, would it be cool or hot or warm? So like, like white hot. White hot. Okay. And if it had a color, I guess you just said white hot. But would it have a color other than that? It may not.
0: Yeah, like re- like white or like really bright yellow, like verging on white.
1: Okay. So that's where you hold some of your alarm. So I really want, now I want you to add your other hand on top of your first hand, drop your shoulders. And I really want you to imagine making a connection with that little boy at that age that he felt this trauma. Can you do that? Mm -hmm. Can you see his eyes? Mm -hmm. What's he wearing?
0: It's the shorts shorts and t-shirt. Okay.
1: So I want you to tell him, not so much using words, but just tell him that he's safe and that you've got him and he'll never be alone. And whatever trauma he's going through, that you're there with him now. He's not alone anymore. just let your shoulders drop. Yeah, really feel that connection with that little guy. And you may feel a little teary, that's fine. Cause it may be, this may be the first time you've ever really connected with him. So when you get stressed, he's the one that gets stressed. Adult Mark isn't stressed, he's the one that gets stressed. And I want you to tell him either verbally or through your body that he'll never be alone. You'll never leave him for as long as you walk this earth. You two will always be together. He will always have you. He will never be alone and he doesn't have to do everything himself. Is there a sense that he had to do everything himself? Mm -hmm. So you have to reassure him like I've got you and then tell him, You are the very best part of me, and I fully accept you for everything, especially for those things that you judge, abandon, blame, and shame yourself for, because they were not your fault, you were just a boy. I will always be here for you, I will always accept you, I will always love you. your shoulders down. Just notice the urge to kind of contract around that and just stay open. You don't have to widen everything up. You just have to just not contract around it. Almost like something is just flowing through you. And that's your your loving energy for him. And it's flowing all the way through both of you. And you're connecting to each other. He's the one that's sad. And you are a very competent, very loving, very caring person. And it's time you really show him that. And no matter what he says, Thinks or does, or whatever, whatever he said, thought, or did, you love him. He's just a boy. He didn't have to do it all himself, although you still think. And over time, he will have the feeling like you have the ball now. So come come back into your body a little bit. Take a nice deep breath in through your nose. Then rub your chest. Do some circles with your chest. And go the other direction. And let your hands come to your thighs. And just when you're ready, you can open your eyes. Don't rush. (laughs)
0: Oh. <laughs> have
1: you have you ever talked to him before, directly like that?
0: Um, recently, yeah, but it was the first Picture. time, like maybe a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um. So I haven't really like I've I've considered it. I've written a letter to him actually. Yeah. But it was like that's the first time where I've really like tried to feel it because you kept saying the shoulders. Because I think I just have such a pattern of like as soon as it gets there, I just res- I I kind of resist.
1: Yeah. Well, the pattern I read with you is that you felt like you had to do it all yourself. You had too much responsibility. And when I see people that have too much responsibility given to them as children, often they'll feel their alarm across their Mm -hmm. shoulders. So that's if, if, if it's somebody if they couldn't say something to their parent, often they'll feel it in their throat. If it's an abandonment wound, it's often in their heart. If it's, if it's that they didn't get their underlying needs met, like they didn't get fed properly or they didn't have shelter, often they'll feel it in their gut. Now, these are general rules after doing this with many, many different people. But for you, the pattern that you learned, and I don't think it's all yours. I think, I think there's part of it that, that you've inherited through your family line of over-responsibility. And I think it's like, how much does my responsibility to others end and my responsibility to myself begin? Because, you know, to do the work that you're doing and sustain it, you're gonna to have to have a really good connection with that that little boy in you that feels like he has to do everything himself. And he is doing a, a wonderful job. I mean, this is part of your dharma or this is part of your, you know, your your destiny, of course. But you wanna do it in a sustainable way. You wanna do it so that you're completely connected with him. And when you guys are together, you know, so the next time you go and kick the ball around, bring him with you. You know, um, you know, I often tell people to go back to the thing that they used to do as a child, you know, and I guess you and your brother were really into sport, you know? So do you see your brother very much anymore? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, the next time you don't have to take them through the full exercise, but just see if the two of you can bring back, you know, I get, you know, 10 and eight years old, you know, how, how far apart are you guys in age?
0: Two and a half years.
1: Yeah. Okay. So yeah, 10 and eight years old. That's the age mm-hmm. that I get. And, and, um, hmm. so, so yeah, I just, you know, where, where just, are you
0: getting this from by the way? Cause I haven't even mentioned that, my brother.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's an intuitive side sort of an intuitive oh. thing. So, um, that's part of the weird part of me, you know, like I was, I was trained as a medical doctor for sure. My little diplomas sit <laughs> right up there. Yeah. Um, but it was funny when I was a medical doctor, I had the intuition, but I just didn't have it that strongly. So when I left to kind of become a writer and to help people with anxiety, my intuition really expanded a lot. And I think what happened was I was so used to thinking in a linear left brain model, which is basically what you have to do as a doctor. You know, you're converging down to a diagnosis as opposed to, you know, the artistic part of me, the intuitive part of me, which is very expansive. So the two sides fight. Like I was a stand-up comic for 15 years as well, right? So I would do medicine. I would go work at the urgent care clinic, you know, till 4 p.m. I'd go home. I'd have dinner, you know. I'd have a shower, and then I would go out and do two shows that night as a comedian. And I did that for many years. And it was just, it was really, it really allowed me to keep the creative side going because I can see my my little OCD tendencies to you know fixate on one particular thing, which is my intellect. And for, for many years, that was my downfall because how I had to heal from anxiety was not through thinking. And in fact, the thinking was actually making me worse. So I had to really feel it in my body. And once I felt it in my body and connected, like I just showed, showed you, like, and that was a very abbreviated version, usually mm-hmm. with people, uh, excuse me, I do that over you know, 90 minutes. I mean, I do the, the, that process probably over half an hour, but I, and then we sort of integrate it for the next sort of 60 minutes on top of that. Um, and I show people like, this is what you have to do every day. If you get a picture of him, find a picture of him. My, my image is find a picture of you and your brother. Cause I think you, you and your brother were very tight. I think, I think yeah. that you, I think that you kind of, I get that the image that you guys got, uh, uh, f- fought a lot or there was a, you know, but it was loving conflict though. It was loving, con- like a, like a <laughs> competition kind of thing. Right. Like that's yeah. what I get between you guys. So it's kind of like, um, Yeah. And, and just, I think that's how you kind of showed love for each other too. Right. So it's just, and just becoming, uh, and just becoming aware of that, you know, it's like we, you know, we competed because we loved each other and that was a way that we, we kind of pushed ourselves forward, but it was also, uh, it was also, um, a way of really connecting, like really connecting. So, um, but it, it also kind of puts us into that sort of. Challenging, semi-adversarial role, which I think your your underlying dharma or destiny is to be this sort of connected people that connects other people together, right? So challenge, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why you know, I mean, I guess you retired, of course, from football, but um, but I think you know, I think you you learned a lot from winning and losing playing football. I think you know because. There's nothing you can do about loss. You know, there's all there is, is tears. You know, that's one of the things that, that uh, tears are very healing from a neuro, from a neuroscience point of view. Tears are one of those things that doesn't change the external situation. You've lost the championship game. It doesn't change anything, but it does tears in your own, in your own brain as a neuroscientist. It changes your perception of the event. So, you know, your, your pet still died. You're still getting a divorce. Um, You've lost your job but tears actually help us perceive the whole event differently. So it doesn't send that charge through our body every single time that just, that just tires us out. So yeah. I think, and, and that's one of the reasons I think that men have such a difficult time because you know, since we were boys, it's, it's bred out of us. Like, you know, big boys don't cry. You can't cry. Three years old is kind of like, you know, that's getting to the edge of the, you know, it's, you're allowed to cry at three, at three, you know, four, you're kind of like, okay, you know, you've, you've had your, you've had your tears. And unfortunately, you know, that's why men have three times the suicide rate that women do not just tears, but there's a bunch of reasons too, but tears is one of them because we shut off this adaptation, this brilliant natural adaptation response that we have in our human brain and, and body that tears release this energy that allow us to kind of think clearly again. And if you can't do that, the the energy just gets stuffed into your body as alarm. And there's nothing we can do with that except become addicted to something, you know, cocaine, alcohol, drugs of any kind, um, sex, pornography, internet, social media. Like that is a distraction from the alarm that we feel in our bodies. So it helps in the short term but in the long term we still have this alarm in the body so what i did with you is to try and exercise maybe that's a word, not the right word but but to bring it up because you you've got to feel it to heal it but you've got to be in this sort of you know ready to do that you know you've got to be in a place where you're ready to bring it up to the surface you're welcoming it like that's the thing about welcoming so much we uh, things that traumatize us we're like no 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 i can't i can't i can't deal with this i can't deal with this and it's like if you have a new bike and say you've never ridden a bike before and someone buys you this brilliant bike. So you read 500 books on how to ride a bike and it's still sitting in your front front driveway. And then you go out to ride the bike and you're like, well, I, I think I read. I need to read a little bit more about the pedals. And then you go back in. Then you go back out to the bike. It's like, no, I think I need to read a little bit more. Until Get on the damn bike. Like get a, and, re, and, and ride the emotion because until you actually get on the bike, ride the emotion and fall off a few times, you're never going to learn that it's actually not that bad. The emotion that we feel is, 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 is tolerable what what kills us literally is the thoughts that we create around that emotion because the brain is a compulsive meaning making make sense machine so if it feels this alarm that we've stuffed in our body it will read that alarm it senses that there's something uncomfortable in us The brain goes, okay, this feels uncomfortable. What's uncomfortable in my life? Well, taxes are coming up. Oh, I'm not doing so well with my wife. Oh, uh, my job isn't so good. So all these things kind of come into our mind, which of course creates more alarm in the body because the body will react to a thought the way it reacts to, to reality. And you never actually really deal with the problem. So in a lot of therapies, cognitive therapies, you're dealing with the problem up here but what if, what if the actual issue is here, like in, in your chest, like if the issue is here and you're doing all this talking up in here, this never gets fixed. This makes you feel better temporarily, which is true with CBT. A lot of CBT helps in the short term, but typically not with everybody, it works really well for some people, but with a lot of people, especially those with childhood trauma, it doesn't really help them in the long term. You know? So that's a lot of my message. That's a lot of the message that I, you know, that I put in this book was, was, is basically about. Where the anxiety comes from, you know, it comes from worry serves a purpose. People say, "Well, worry does nothing." Worry actually does a lot, because what happens is when we get—I know I'm talking a lot today. I had coffee. I shouldn't have had coffee. But what happens is we we have we have trauma. Everyone has trauma in their childhood, right? So what happens as a child is we push that trauma down into our body, right? So we don't want to go back down into feeling town because it hurts down there because we stuffed it all down there. So what we do is we keep ourselves trapped in our heads by overthinking, ruminating. And that way, if we ruminate and we stick in our heads with worry, we never actually have to go back down into that place that really hurts. But until we go back down to that place that really hurts, what I just did with you, we never actually clear it. It's, all, it's like going out and getting to the bike and never actually getting on the bike because you only learn these how to deal with these implicit programs, these body memories, these body programs by actually getting in the same room with them and metabolizing them and seeing they're not that bad. What makes it the runaway train is the thoughts that we add to it. That's what kills us. The alarm feeling, the heartache itself is painful, no doubt. But it's when we add the sort of, if you go through a breakup, it's like, oh, I wish I had done that. Or maybe I shouldn't have said that, that to her. Maybe that's what caused the breakup. Maybe we could get back together. Like it's the thoughts that just keep the cycle going. And the, the little story that I tell in my book is it's kind of like if you have a short-circuiting toaster in your house and it's got a live wire and it's lit, lit the house on fire and then you just throw matches on top of it, like the the fire is never going to go out and the matches are kind of like your thoughts, right? Now, what happens is we got to deal with with the mis, the malfunctioning toaster not and not just stop throwing thoughts on it. So the thoughts make it worse, no doubt. But the underlying problem is this alarm that's stored in the body. And that's basically what I what I found on LSD was um, this, you know, academic that I am, excuse me, who thought for sure I could fix this with, you know, I gotta modify my hippocampus. I've got to, you know, this is a, an amygdala-based thing. This is something that's going through my limbic system and and is bypassing my prefrontal like all this neuroscience stuff that I know. But really, what LSD showed me is like, no Russ rusty. You know, that was, that's the 12 year old that watched his dad being taken away in an ambulance after a suicide attempt. Like that's the kid I have to, I have to get at. That's the kid I have to sort of say, look, it's okay. You're not there anymore. I've got you. You're all right. So it's, it's this, it's this energy that we store in our bodies that I write about. This is what we have to clear. So, and then when it's okay to go back into your body again, when you clear that energy and you develop a relationship with that, then there isn't this compulsion to stay in your head anymore now it's safe to go back into this area so you don't have to stay worried you don't have to to trick yourself and ruminate on stuff to stay out of this area of your body that's so painful because now you're starting to metabolize it and once you start metabolizing it you get some agency and some control over it and the worst part of anxiety is the fact that we all feel like victims because you are when when you have anxiety you feel like a victim and it puts you into victim physiology and that never allows you to heal So it's, it's, you know, it's partly learning a different physiology. It's learning to develop a relationship with the wounded child in you. And I know that sounds kind of woo and whatever. But really, a lot of it is that a lot of it is this, these old traumas that we're holding down. And, and, you know, getting back to your original comment, medical doctors aren't trained in that. We aren't trained in how to how to deal with these things because we get seven to 10 minutes with a patient. I can't take like I took you through that in about 10 minutes. But there's a lot of debriefing that I do. And, and I'd love, Mark, to, to take you through a full process because I don't want to kind of leave you just kind of hang in there. Right. So at some point in the next week or two, we should just get in and I'll, I'll, I'll do the full thing on you for 90 minutes. And we'll just really unearth a lot of this stuff. But I know I'm I'll talking, like, like I'm so passionate about this. I really, you know, I really don't want people to have to suffer with anxiety like I did. I, I was suicidal at points. My dad committed suicide. I was thinking, is this the same? Is this the same pathway that I'm going down? Because I just really don't want to do this. And, and I think it's, I just really don't want people to have to suffer. And I wish I knew the stuff that I'm telling you now, 25 years ago, it would have been my life so much better, like just so much better.
0: Um, what you're doing is allowing people to learn that stuff 25 years before you did right so amazing look firstly thank you for taking me through that I know it was brief I would love to do a 90 minutes with you absolutely yeah it was so powerful I wasn't expecting to go there that quickly Uh, I've done breath work I've done psychedelics I've done CBT I've done all these things and and I think that I've certainly been one of those typical alpha males who's resisted tears and not wanted to go there and and that was that was interesting because I did just have tears and they dropped down my face. But usually the way I cry is I'm I'm thrust into it somehow through like yeah. a, a long period of um, breath work or something. And I'm sobbing, you know, uncontrollably yeah. sobbing. Whereas that was just like a very gentle, I just kind of got there straight away. But I think also, you know, I want you to define anxiety in a minute. But I think, and again, I said, I, I do believe that you meet people at the right time in your life, but, and everything that's coming together for me at the moment is that our lives are built on our ability to basically fix our relationship with ourselves, And that's, and that's as you're referring to our younger self. So I just, I just think it's unbelievable. Uh, I bought your book. I haven't read it yet. Cause I know we only spoke the other sure. like, a few days yeah, ago sure. and, and I'm about to read it. I can't sure. wait. Um, but yeah, I suppose Russell, it, it would be great because I, because so many people, everyone, I think, I don't think that would be unfair to say everyone suffers with anxiety to a degree. We're yeah. all on the scale. Um, how, how do you define it? You've started to talk a little bit about the alarm system and where it sits in your body and stuff, but how would right. you define it?
1: Well, for me, I have a very unique way of defining anxiety. Anxiety for me is only anxious thoughts. That's all anxiety is. And if I keep it in that framework, it makes it so much easier for me to help people move through it. So, Anxiety is only anxious thoughts. And I, I give this example. I have two, I have, say I have two 15-year-olds in my office. One's a male, one's a female. And I go in and I say, Hey, Jessica, you might be pregnant. Now Jessica is probably gonna freak out if she's 15 and pregnant. And her body's gonna, gonna secrete adrenaline and cortisol and she's gonna get all worked up and her body's gonna get into this fight or flight state. And she's gonna be like, what am I gonna tell my mother? You know, what am I gonna tell my boyfriend? Oh my god, I'm gonna have to have an abortion. You know, all this kind of stuff is gonna come in her head. Then I go into the other room and I go, hey, Jason, you might be pregnant. And he just laughs. And his body doesn't react at all. Same statement, but totally different reaction. Because it's the belief in what we tell ourselves that creates this alarm, the cre- or at least aggravates the alarm. So... Anxiety itself is not painful. Anxiety is just anxious thoughts. They're just a series of words that are strung together. You've strung together in the mind. It's the meaning and belief that you give those thoughts that has the power to hurt you and it has the power to hurt you through your body. It doesn't hurt you through your mind. I've been in in, on neurosurgery. I've assisted on neurosurgery where we cut straight into the brain and the brain has no pain fibers whatsoever Mm. in and of itself. You just have to anesthetize the scalp, but the scalp and the, the skull. So we have to learn that anxiety is just anxious thoughts that we can see objectively, almost like a parade going by. And this is the great thing about meditation is meditation kind of teaches you to see your thoughts as a parade going by. But often I don't recommend meditation for people that have anxiety because as soon as their mind gets quiet, everything just explodes in there. I mean, they've been living, they've been living by distracting themselves the whole time. That's been their coping strategy or defensive accommodation, as we would call it. So when I take that defensive accommodation away and they can't think like that, they'll freak out. Their body will lose it because they've used that as a way of coping. Now, alarm is is anxiety's evil twin. Alarm is what gets, what I was saying, what gets stuffed into our bodies when we're younger. So the little analogy that I draw is, say for sake of argument that a child's brain can hold one cup of trauma, like a cup of trauma, right? So, you know, their pet dies, um, their sister gets sick, but gets better again. Um, You know, the parents fight sometimes, you know, one cup of trauma. Now, say their sister dies or say the parents get a divorce. That's two cups of trauma. So the first cup goes in and then the second cup goes in. The second cup goes outside of the brain because it can't hold it anymore and then it finds a place in the body. And that's alarm. And that alarm will sit there for the rest of that child's life. Now, until you unearth that alarm and start feeling it and being willing to feel it, given the, the right circumstances, like if I show you how to regulate your autonomic nervous system, your fight or flight, parasympathetic relaxation nervous system, if I give you a safe place to land with that alarm, then you can start metabolizing it. Then you can start working through it because you have a safe place. It's like, Going out and getting on the bike. You may fall off a a few times, but you're on the bike, you know how to ride it, you get get used to it, you actually enjoy it after a while. So there's a difference between anxiety, which is just purely anxious thoughts, strung together as words, and alarm, which is what's painful. That's what hurts us, is this alarm that's lodged in our bodies. And it's usually from the unconscious. You know, the it's been said that the the body is the representation of the unconscious mind, which I believe. So why not use the body as a way of getting, like I say, in that same room with that implicit or body memory so that, you know, it's a feeling state. So you need a feeling state to get in there and kind of work with it, you know, to move it around a little bit. So it's like if you've got something in a room and the door is closed, you can yell outside the room and, and, and what's inside the room will get a vague idea of what's going on. But if you're face to face and explaining and hugging and, and you're giving it the nuances of, of what it needs to kind of come out and feel safe, that's how you heal. And that's how you heal more permanently because you teach someone that their alarm A is tolerable, provided you don't start hooking thoughts into it. And then you learn to metabolize it. And then you learn it's not actually that bad. Like I still I wrote a book on anxiety and I still get anxious, right? And they go, well, what, what's, what, what's up with that? And I said, well, Dr. Phil wrote a book on weight loss and he's 40 pounds overweight. But anyway, that's a side, that's a side, that's a sideline. That's not a shot at Dr. Phil. It's just the fact that I think the people that have the problem are the best ones to actually find the solution. And that's basically what I had to do, like physician heal thyself. So I had to find the alarm in my own body. And then my wife's a somatic trauma therapist. So she and I do work together as far as that kind of thing goes. So around the house, we're always like, well, I had this client who had this and it's like, well, and, and then I'll see in, in my mind. I'll say, were they a twin? You know, were they a twin? It's like, yeah, she was a twin. Were they separated when they were like two years old? It's like, yes. They were. You know, So I see these weird little things and I go, well, it's separation anxiety. So you have to get her back together with her twin. And anyway, I'm sort of rambling there, but mm-hmm. it's just, so you're asking your original question, defining anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is how I work, because I just start channeling stuff and it just comes right through me. So anxiety is just anxious thoughts. There's just your brain puts words in a certain order and it's it's the it's the it's the meaning that you give those words that causes you the pain. Alarm, on the other hand, is in there. Alarm hurts. There's nothing really you can do about alarm in the short term, other than start developing a relationship, because chances are that alarm is your younger self that you know at four years old, um, you know, watched her, his mother hit his father, you know, that alarm stays on us. And unless you actually bring that alarm up and metabolize it, it will continue to feed the thoughts of the mind. So when we feel alarm in our body, like I said earlier, the brain being, the mind being a a compulsive meaning making make sense machine, it will make sense of that uncomfortable feeling by creating a coherent, uncomfortable story, which of course creates more alarm in the body which creates more discomfort, uncomfortable stories, which creates, so you get in what I call the alarm anxiety cycle. Mm -hmm. So I separate out anxiety into these two components, the anxious thoughts of the mind and the alarm in the body. And once you separate, once you separate them and see that they're in fact separable, then you can break the code. Then you can break the cycle. So you can feel the alarm and not necessarily link them into the anxiety. You can feel the anxiety and not necessarily link them in with alarm. And once you break the cycle, then you can start to heal. Whereas if you're just doing talk therapy and you're just talking yourself out of the thoughts, that's very temporary. You're not actually dealing. And the, the analogy that I draw is like, okay, you've got a hole in your rowboat. This is riding my dog. Um, you've got a hole in your rowboat. And the hole is the problem. So water is coming in. So kind of like talk therapy, CBT, all that sort of stuff, is bailing water out. So you're bailing water out. You're feeling a little better because the water level dropping a little bit but you're not actually fixing the underlying cause which is the hole in the boat which is the alarm mm. so you have to patch over the alarm you have to repair the alarm and then you don't need to you don't need to bail anymore because you've solved the problem at its source so again you asked me a simple question i gave you like a 20 minute answer
0: <laughs> i'm going to ask you a slightly more difficult question okay, which sure. i know is answered in the book at, at length sure. but just for the sake of this for people listening sure what is that process of patching up the boat like what what specifically and, and i'm and not necessarily in a 90 minute session with you but like if people feel it and i know you, said you can't fix it in the short term but if people feel it and they get in touch with that body and they have the ability to separate the thoughts from the alarm in the body what can they do? Is it just a case of reminding yourself that it's okay and getting back in touch with the younger self or, or what can they do? It's
1: part of it. I think it's just in the short term, like when you're freaking out about not being able to make your rent or, or whatever, it's like, go into your body first, like put your hand on your chest. You know, you can, you can never go wrong by putting your hand around your heart space and just really feeling your own compassionate touch. Because a lot of what happens when we go into this thing is it's not so much our adult, because we know we'll find a way it's the child You know, it's the child that went through a similar situation. You know, the landlord was knocking on the door and we didn't know what mom or dad was going to do. So you go back and you just sort of, you know, put your hand over your chest and you just kind of just make some circles there and you feel sensation because sensation brings you into the moment. Anxiety, worry is always about the future. You can't worry about something that's happening now. By definition, if you're worried about something, it's not happening now. Mm-hmm. So it's always about something in the future. So you, we, our brain mentally time travels us into the future, into this future horrible situation where we're on stage and we're bombing or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. what you do is what sensation will do is it will bring you back into the present. And when the when you back back into the present, then you can see, hey, I'm not there. You know, I'm not in this projected future. The other thing that I think is great is our essential oils, you know, like like frankincense is one of the ones that I use. Because one of the things about the limbic system, the emotional part of our brain, is that smell is the only sense in the brain that isn't pre-processed by something called the thalamus. Thalamus is kind of like the central switchboard. You see those old movies of the the ladies and and they go, you know, laundry and they they plug in the, the thing on the switchboard. That's kind of what the thalamus does. But with smell, smell goes directly into our emotional brain. And I think that comes from evolution, you know, like 60,000 years ago, if there was a predator or a warring tribe and you smelled them first, your body would go into immediate reaction. Now we can use that immediate reaction to calm us or to to fire us up. So I I get people to like smell an essential oil. If you have an anxiety issue, find an essential oil that you like, like lavender or frankincense or vetiver or one of the ones that's grounding. Find something that helps you carry it around with you, you know, in Mm -hmm. your pocket or your purse or whatever. And then, you know, just discreetly kind of smell it, and then just sort of allow that to bring you into your limbic brain, your emotional brain, and calm it down. Breath is wonderful. But the thing is, here's the thing about a lot of the cognitive solutions is you have to be cognitive. You have to be in your prefrontal cortex, your neocortex, to be able to have the wherewithal to know to use the breathing technique, right? So if people are freaking out, you know, it's like, it's like me holding a knife to your, your, your throat and saying, well, here's this algebra problem solve this out Mm. of course you can't do it right so we're asking people to to go out of a, a an alarm state and then use your wherewithal use your prefrontal cortex when you're already in an alarm state so what you have to do is automatically teach yourself to go into your body your brain will not your mind will not get you out of the issue that's the thing but your mind will tell you that it does and one of the stories that I put in the book and I love is the story about Ulysses and the sirens. You know, when he goes by Siren Island and he has he has his men put in uh, beeswax so they, they can't hear the, the, the sing song of these beautiful siren women calling them to their deaths. Essentially, the sirens call the, the sailors and they drive their boats on the shores and they go up to the sirens and the sirens turn into monsters and they kill them. The sirens are your thoughts. So the sirens are over there going, hey, we have the solution. We have the solution. What all they have is more pain so what it is is don't go up into your head when you feel stressed when there's something in in your environment that's stressing you don't go up into your head the solution isn't in there the solution is going into your body so smell an essential oil learn how to breathe properly like do some breath work stuff get into your body your body will ground you your mind will probably just give you more of the problem you know and it's just it's just the one of the unfortunate wirings in human beings Mm. is that when we feel alarmed we will have thoughts that are completely consistent with that alarm and it's very difficult to tell yourself you're feeling in a different way than your body and i I know gratitude is great for that that kind of thing but again you have to be cognizant cognizant enough to be able to go oh i should be grateful and i really there's only one thought and this is i'm glad that I, i kind of remembered this there is only one thought that i tell people you're allowed to have when you are anxious or alarmed i like use, i like to use the word alarmed rather than anxious And that is, am I safe in this moment? The middle of the day, the middle of the night, you're freaking out. You just say, "Uh, I know I'm worried. I know things look horrible right now. But in this very moment that I'm in right now, can I look around this room? Can I put my hand on my chest? And can I really just affirm to myself that I'm actually safe? Like right now, I'm actually safe. Because a lot of people who are worriers... Just go from one worry to the next worry to the next worry. So they'll have, they say they'll be afraid of, a, they're afraid of flying. So they have a flight at the end of the month. So they'll get on the flight. They'll make it to be, Oh my God. Oh my God. I finally made it. Oh, and now, now I've got that blood test that I have to get next week. So they go from one trauma to the next trauma to the next trauma. They never actually acknowledge in their unconscious or subconscious mind that they're actually safe anytime. So of course, if, if, of course, you're just going to feel chronically on edge if you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And often that's a, a factor of our childhoods. If you grew up like I did with a chaotic childhood, you, you get afraid not to be afraid. So for me, when I would get, when I would get calm, I would start to actually get a little panicky because I was waiting for my dad to go crazy again. And he always did, even though it was like 18 months later. But there's, that's what we do as children is we kind of we're always in that anticipatory mood and we never actually let ourselves acknowledge that we're safe. So I tell people when you wake up in the middle of the night, one, anything that you think of in the middle of the night is wrong. Do not believe anything in the middle of the night. It is not true. When you wake up the next day, you'll call back and you go, oh, yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because in the middle of the night, all your defenses are dumb. They're all You've woken up. All your defenses are down. Any thought that comes into your mind will automatically be assumed to be true. And it's not. So I just tell people, when you wake up in the middle of the night, all bets are off. None of the thoughts that you think are accurate. If they are accurate, you'll have them the next morning and you can deal with them then.
0: Hmm. That's so good. Uh, that is going to help so many people. Thank you, Russell. Um, I have a few more. Sure. How are you for time? How are I'm you for great. Time? Yeah, I'm great. Good. Yeah. You spoke earlier about how we get into a pattern of thoughts that we create in our youth and that live in our, our body as we get older. And that's the alarm system where we're storing that. Yep. Could you explain that in a bit more depth using your own example? Because, yeah. you know, when you, you, you said, you're saying the brain decides to make a meaning of a particular event and that's how you store it. It's your perception of that thing. So just so people, cause I think that's, that's huge. That's massive for people to understand. So yeah, I just wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit more, maybe using your example and, and kind of, the meaning that you made those events mean to you yeah no moment. i get it no i totally <laughs> get
1: it so there's two there's two types of memory there's implicit memory and explicit memory Ex, an, an example of explicit memory or autobiographical memory would be um in 2003 i visited glasgow in august and it rained every freaking day for 23 days so that's an example of explicit memory right that's where my family's from my mother's from <laughs> Explicit memory or implicit memory is like how I learned to ride a bike. You know, once you learn to ride a bike, it becomes this kind of body memory. So you don't need when you get on the bike, you don't need to go, Okay, my hands go here. My hands go there. I need to put this foot on this pedal, this foot on that pedal. And now I have to start rotating the pedals. It's just this implicit body memory that gets locked in in this sort of unconscious way. So that's what I think happens with alarm is that when we get subject to the same kind of trauma over and over and over again, it's kind of like riding a bike. So I learned that when I would watch my father and I would see him start to kind of go a little to a little nuts, um, I would go, okay, well, obviously he's heading for depression or mania or psychosis. And a lot of times he wasn't. He was just, you know, just a little odd. Hmm. Uh, But I would make up in my mind, I would get myself all armored up and ready for the the drop into going to the hospital or whatever it was. So that formed a pattern in my younger self over the course of time. So, you know, if it happened at eight years old, at 10, 11, 13, 15, that kind of thing, it formed this pattern, this groove in my system. And then when you get stressed later on, this is what I'm seeing now, all these people that have had these traumas that were okay, that were kind of, you know, they were held down, people were functioning. That's a, now with COVID, you kind of, you know, you go into low tide and all the stuff that wasn't seen before is now come to the surface. So I see so many people who were coping before COVID with probably a low grade anxiety disorder. They just didn't know it. Now they're into full blown anxiety because that alarm is now heightened. And as soon as the alarm heightens, that's that's where the pain is. That's where we feel this discomfort and this feeling of like helplessness and powerless, probably the same feeling that I got when I watched my dad go crazy because there was nothing I could do, which is one of the reasons I probably became a doctor because it was like I didn't want to be powerless ever again over illness. Um, little did I know that I was actually putting myself in the line of fire <clears throat> with illness by becoming a doctor. but. It was kind of an odd, it's just how your mind plays tricks on you. So that thing with my dad, I I got very good. And this is probably a lot of where my intuition comes from, because I got very good at reading him. Like I would look at and see like just little mannerisms or whatever he would do. And a lot of us kids who had to kind of look after a parent who have, you know, do this, we get very, very good at reading other people. We're called empaths or highly sensitive people or people pleasers. We get very good at reading other people because we had to. Because when we were younger, we had to, to survive, or at least our perception is that we to survive, we needed to be able to read that parent. So we got very good at reading them, but not so good about reading what we needed. You know, So I see all sorts of people um, who were bedwetters when they were kids. Because I ask, were you a bedwetter as a kid? Because what happens is you lose the connection with your own body. So you don't know when you're hungry. So you, you don't know you're hungry until you're absolutely starving. Or you don't know you have to go to the bathroom until your bladder's bursting. You know, so all this kind of stuff, because we lose touch with our own bodies to send out all the feelers to read other people, which makes us great, you know, doctors and empaths and all that kind of stuff. But it also doesn't make it sustainable for us in the long term. So of course, you know, I was destined to burn out of medicine and uh, and not do it. I'm glad that happened. But I think that's what happens to us is we learn so much to read other people, we lose the ability to read ourselves. And when you lose that ability to read yourself, life just becomes very gray. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that's why we get hooked into addictions because it provides addictions provide some color in our life because we we in a way, it's the only way we allow ourselves to feel pleasure on some level is addiction. Because when you felt pleasure as a child, um, that was often always taken away from you. You know, if you had an alcoholic parent or a parent that was sick or there was, you know, um, domestic abuse, and you always knew something was coming up. So you kept yourself in this state of vigilance all the time. And that and that sits in your body that, that be, it forms a groove in your body. Now I want to say something right here because <clears throat> of course you can't separate the mind from the body like it's a construct it really is a construct but it's such a helpful one when it comes to helping people understand their anxiety. you know so we can't make this this thing where the mind is separate from the body but it's a it's a wonderful construct to be able to to see how we can change the pattern of what we call anxiety into anxiety and alarm. In the book, I most always say, when I say anxiety, I'll say anxiety and alarm because the two of them are linked together. And it's the cycle that kills us. So if we can break that cycle, we can actually start to learn how to heal.
0: Do you ever... I'm just fascinated the way you're speaking about how it led you to become a doctor. Yeah. Right, or work in healthcare and help people. Do you ever think about that and think... Fuck! Like it's, I was it. It sort of pushed me down there. I didn't get to make my own. Almost didn't get to make my own choice. Or do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like that. That trauma has has kind of dictated your life in a sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, but you know what? I don't think I'm. I don't mind. You know, like if you would have told me, like if you had seen my grades in in all through school, you know, grades one through twelve, they were pathetic. You know, mm. I was a solid C minus student all the way through. And it wasn't until I was about 22 that I decided to go back to school to do pre-med. And then I, I love neuroscience, so I started working in neuroscience, and, and then I did that as pre-med. And, but I really do feel that a lot of our destinies are kind of pre-planned. You know? I really do feel that that's you know, consciousness has, has, has a plan and it's a very loose plan but it's basically how consciousness works is it wants to experience itself now this is getting a little philosophical it wants to experience it. itself right so it is experiences itself by making some of us bakers and some of us doctors and giving some of us cancer and and letting some of us live to 109. so it experiences itself with the gamut of all these things and i think a lot of this a lot of Our lives are kind of pre-programmed, which is good and bad, because I think what happens with this is we blame ourselves. You know, people say, you know, I haven't done anything with my life. Like I have a friend and uh, he was suicidal a few years ago. He's great now. But he was like, well, Russ, you know, you you became a doctor. You're an author now. You're a stand-up comedian for 15 years. You're a speaker. You know, you've done so much with your life. And I said, yeah, but every day I wake up with anxiety. Like every day I'm in pain. Whereas you, you know, you kind of, he's kind of like a happy-go-lucky free spirit. Like he's hes never really finished any university degrees or whatever. But in general, he's kind of a happy guy, you know. So don't compare someone's outside life to your inside mm-hmm. life. I mean, that's the other thing about Instagram and all that kind of thing. So it is one of those things. And if someone said, you know, have you had a good life? Like if I died tomorrow, like if, have you had a good life? I would say, no, I don't think I have had a good life. I think I've had a productive life. I think I've had an accomplished life, but I think I've suffered a lot. And it's, it's, it's whether or not, and here's, you know, tell me the answer to your question. Am I prepared to take that suffering and, and use it to my advantage? And it's like, yes, I think that's what it is. It's like taking what you've got and, and not framing it up as suffering, even though it was suffering, but not framing it as that, and and it's not Pollyanna. It's not like oh, I wouldn't have been the doctor that I am today, and I wouldn't be helping people the way. It's just really getting a felt sense that this this is kind of your path, and yeah. and can I just embrace and sit in that? Yeah, I, I had a lot of you know a lot of pain in my life, but that's not all of me, right? It's not all of me. And that—that's what my my friend said. You know, he says like, I'm a bum. I don't do anything. You know, he's, he's he comes from a rich family. He's got money, and that's it's like, no, you filled your purpose just as as I did. You know, just different paths. And I think a lot of our paths are predestined. I really do. I mean, within a framework. I mean, I could have been a dentist or you know something like that. But uh, actually, no, I don't think I could. It. But uh, it's but, you know, I think a lot of us are kind of we serve a purpose for consciousness, really. I think that's what it is. I'm not a big religious person. Like, I don't believe in monotheism, like one particular deity is like the, the leader of the of the of the universe. But I think we serve we all serve consciousness. And I think consciousness at its greatest level is just this source of love, and love is a construct. Now, we're getting a little philosoph- philosophical here, and I'll bring it back in a minute. But it, we, we, all, we all serve this love part, and it's really about coming back to being able to loving yourself. And I think that's, if you ask me in in maybe five years, you know, did you have a good life? I'd probably say yes, because I'm just now getting to the point where I'm feeling like I have a career that I love. I'm doing the work that I love. And, and, and everything seems to kind of make sense at this point. But up until, you know, like a year ago, my life was pretty painful. I accomplished a lot. I did. I, I did a lot of things. But every day I, I struggled with anxiety or alarm, I should say. So I, I think that we do we do have a certain destiny. And I think it's just embracing that destiny. It's not like when I hear people say, oh, you know, I, I could have done so much. It's like, yeah, but wasn't your path. You know, can you embrace the fact that you didn't go to university? Can you embrace the, pa- the fact that you didn't have kids? Can you actually turn it around and embrace that as opposed to going, flagellate, judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming yourself, which is never going to get you anywhere. I mean, unless it drives you to become, you know, a healer or a teacher or a better version of yourself, judgment, alien, ab- abandonment, blame, and shame aren't helping you.
0: That theory is making me feel very at peace. I really love the, the idea of that. I, I could certainly subscribe to that. A lot of what we talk about is purpose and finding your purpose. Um, I started take flight because I was in the corporate world. I was climbing the the wrong ladder. I decided I was yeah, climbing the wrong sure. ladder, um, and I wanted to take the leap of faith into what I perceived to be my purpose. And I've 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 had a question mark over that that theory for a while. Like, does everybody have a purpose? Does everybody need to find their purpose? But the way that you've just articulated that really made sense to me. And again, I felt it as you explained it. So I'm actually looking forward to listening back to what you said again and really letting that sink in because that's that's huge. I know you're saying we're getting philosophical, but um, that was amazing. Thank you, Russ. I appreciate that. And um, then when
1: we do our session, Mark, like I, I think that your purpose will become a lot more apparent to you. And And on top of that, Uh, the great thing about it is you'll have a choice of where you want to take your purpose, you know, rather Mm. than it being an obligation, it becomes a choice. And when it becomes a choice, it's just so much more enjoyable. Like you're just, Mm. it's just so much more, it's just so much easier on your inner child, especially with your background. It's just this over responsibility, this over, this over sense that, that you have to do it all yourself. Once that's gone, then you can actually really experience your authentic dharma, where you're supposed to go, without the kind of you know the hand on your back pushing you forward. You do it yourself. You you actually pull yourself forward, as opposed to pushing yourself from behind. Yeah,
0: and that's what I need because the pushing you forward thing is exhausting. Um, Not sustainable. I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm looking. For, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you sure. again. Yeah, about my stuff (laughs) in in the meantime we'll help the other people listening um and actually i just want to say one more thing because it's really fascinating that you brought my brother into this because um i've been doing a lot of work a lot of work on me and my story which again i'll tell you in our session but i haven't given too much attention to him Mm. but funnily enough He's one of the things that triggers me more. Like I tell you, when we were growing up, if anyone said anything to him, I was fighting like that. Yeah. Regardless of what the situation was. Like For I was sure. I'm so, so protective of, of him. Um, I even had a dream last night, which is weird we're talking about this. I had a dream last night that we were on holiday as a family and he was attacked by a shark. I don't know why, it's weird. But I woke up so sad and I had to text him, You're you're all right, bro? Like yeah. you okay? And he was just like, Yeah, I'm fine, like what? <laughs> but I just um I think that's interesting. That's something I clearly haven't given too much thought about because I've been so focused on this other stuff. So um, yeah, that's uh, that's been really helpful. So thank you. The question I had next was around coping mechanisms because these right. are the things that we we play out every single day in our lives, totally. whether we know it or not.
1: Yeah.
0: I, and I work with a lot of clients one to one. You know, a lot of it's like goal-driven stuff, outcome-driven stuff, and yeah. a lot of that is built built around the coping mechanism. You know, totally. these addictions we spoke about. Yeah. So I'm just interested from your experience, like. Why do they they stop working for us? Why do they suddenly stop? What what leads to that?
1: Well, usually the stuff that drives us is is pain from our past, right? So anxiety, for one, you know, alarm, whatever you want to call Mm. it. So I use this constant fear of not, you know, being successful to become successful, even though, like I said much of my life has been painful. So it's it's a definition of, of, you know, what is really helping you and what is really coming from your core. And it's a combination of both. I mean, I, I'm sure that I was a, a teacher and a, destined to become a teacher and a doctor. I know that. Uh, it's just the formation of it. And I think it's learning how to embrace those coping mechanisms. Or, you know, we also call them defensive accommodations. So in a way, chronic worry was a defense because uh, like I said earlier if you worry and stay in your head you don't have to go down and visit that feeling that's stuck in your body right so it's a defensive accommodation now but worry starts to not work because you know you can only you'll burn out your adrenals here you can only secrete so much adrenaline and cortisol before you know the the hippocampus in your brain starts to kind of wither away a little bit because it's not used to to operating with that much stress hormone in your system. So, it's a matter of how can we use our natural talents and not be driven. You know, like like allow ourselves to be pulled forward as opposed to be pushed from behind. And I think what it really comes down to is understanding yourself, understanding that child in you. Like what does he want? You know, what does that 10-year-old boy want? Like what? What would he really be happy with? Mm. Because then we find ourselves, we find our authentic self. You know, there's a there's a type of therapy called um, internal family systems, where we look at the parts of us that are, say, narcissistic, or the parts of us that are very um, codependent, or whatever. And then there is this self, this overriding self, which is the authentic one, which kind of like says, okay, you know, I see you, you know, being kind of demanding. And and that's okay in the situation. So it's just coming to this sort of understanding of yourself without the judgment, without the abandonment, without the blaming and the shaming. So if you're achieving your goals through, you know, blaming yourself, God, I wish I had done this better. I wish that, you know, or shaming yourself. My God, you know, I have to be this perfect person because I did so many bad things in the past. Like that's not sustainable. But if it's coming from your real self, I'm just going to close the door here. Mm-hmm. But if it's coming from your real authentic self, which is typically you have access to that when you find that child in you, and and a lot of times it's the child that's wounded. I think a lot of what consciousness does is it wounds us in a certain way so that we blossom into this particular teacher or we blossom into a baker or a dentist or whatever it is. I think that we're pushed in a certain environment and it's learning how to embrace the pain. And like I said earlier, it's just seeing that it's just pain, like it's just pain. And the other thing is, is um, the pain, the alarm, I believe, is created by that younger version of ourselves. If we use you as a 10-year-old boy, you're creating this alarm and it's kind of like you're smaller and you're kind of pushing this alarm up. And then adult Mark sees the alarm and goes, oh, I don't want to go in there because that hurts even though young Mark is asking for your attention by creating this alarm. But what we do is we say, well, this hurts. This is like getting on the bike. I'm not gonna do this. And what we do is we we see the alarm, we go, I'm not going there. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna reverse and go into my head and start overthinking, right? But what we have to do is because on the other side of that alarm is that child in us with his hands up or her hands up asking for our attention. And we're we're not going there. We're not gonna go through the alarm. And then that child sees that we're not going to go through the alarm and feels like, well, I guess I'm not worth it. You know, if, if adult me, isn't going to come and rescue me, I must not be worth it, which creates a lot of angst, which creates a lot of drive in people to become famous or to become, you know, Mm -hmm. um, something that they perceive is going to give them this sense of, of connection. But really what we all want is that real authentic connection to our true self. And and we only get that by going through the fire of alarm. We only get that by feeling it. And there's lots of mornings that I wake up, not so much anymore, but it used to be, where I would wake up in this deep sense of alarm. And now what I do is I just embrace it. I just kind of I imagine myself just swimming in it and just trying to find, you know, the younger version of myself swimming in it too and going, hey, this doesn't feel very good, does it? And mm-hmm. and it's like, no, oh, well, come with me, you know, we'll find the beach and we'll we'll sit, we'll sit for a while. And that helps. It really does. It really helps when you find that younger version of yourself who was struggling, who didn't, you know, who, who no one came along to rescue. You know, no one came along to rescue me from my dad. Uh, as much as I love my dad, I still love, uh, you know, I still love him. He's been dead for many, many years now. Um, but it's one of those things that I think we just sort of realize that when you're connected with your authentic self, and again, it's getting kind of philosophical, when you're connected with your authentic self, life feels good. You know, of course there's there's shit that comes in. Of course there is. But when you're connected to that younger version of yourself and you feel authentic and whole, you don't no longer need to play these defensive accommodations anymore. You don't need to be the narcissist. You don't need to be the complete center of attention all the time. Um, You don't need to do that anymore because you've already soothed that alarm within yourself. And the reason why that alarm is there in the first place is that child in you is asking for attention in whatever way it's going to get it. And it may lie, cheat, steal, take drugs or whatever it needs to do to get its needs met. And your job as the adult is kind of go, okay, well, I don't want you to have to do all these sort of things. I'm going to go through the alarm for us together so that we can form our authentic self again. And it takes a while. Like it took me probably three years to find the younger version of myself. Now i the people I work with find it a lot earlier than that because I was kind of just shotgunning, trying everything, but you know, that's really what it comes down to. And it's sort of soothing yourself through your autonomic nervous system, you know, the, the fight or flight nervous system. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, and you know, it's a funny thing when I look at your hat there and it says take flight You know, a lot of people think that the the sympathetic nervous system, you know, the fight or flight nervous system is there to fight or flee. But a lot of people don't realize that the the reason why we have a sympathetic nervous system, a lot of the time, is to pursue connection. So I use the example of a a child lost in a store, like a grocery store. And a six-year-old child who loses their parents in a grocery store. That that child doesn't want to fight anyone. It doesn't want to run away. Basically, it wants to pursue the connection that it's lost. So it pursues the parent. Now, if it can't find the parent, then it goes. Then it goes into fight. Then it goes into like I can't do this, or it goes into shutdown. One of the two. But the first response of the parasympathetic nervous system is towards pursuit. Is to pursue that closed connection. And that. And so when you can use, you can use that. You know, when you feel alarmed, you can say, okay, who am I pursuing? Well, I'm pursuing the younger version of myself that's actually afraid right now. That's what you're pursuing. And you have to go through the alarm without adding a whole bunch of thoughts to it. You have to go through the alarm to be able to find that younger version of yourself. And the thing I'll add on to that is the intensity of the alarm. Like some people say, man, this anxiety that I have, you know, in in truth alarm is so painful. And I said, yeah, you know what it is? That pain is proportional to the amount that you love yourself and won't let it in. Hmm. So people that have the worst anxiety or alarm, typically are the ones that can love themselves the most and are blocking it. So what happens is, the alarm has to get higher and higher and higher and higher to break through so you can show you how to love yourself. That's really what the alarm is there for. So you can either see it in this lifetime or not. But it's really and that's the premise of the book is like, you know, you have to find that alarm. You have to make friends with your younger self. You have to stop judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming them because it's not going to lead you to the path that you think. There's so many people who have money, like so much money, fame, fortune, all this stuff, who are miserable. Because they're not connected to their younger self. And their younger self is asking for all this attention and they are getting it. And it's a massive distraction. And I feel bad for some of these, you know, child stars who have these, this massive amount of attention and they think this is what life is all about. And then it gets withdrawn from them. And then of course they collapse because this is what they've predicated their happiness on. And it it really, you know, it sounds as, as Pollyanna as it sounds, the happiness comes from being your authentic self. And the alarm, anxiety, whatever you want to call it, is there to show you the pathway to your to your authentic self. If you see it, then you know you go through the alarm and find that younger self. If you don't, if you just keep running from it, you'll run for the rest of your life, and then maybe in the next life, you'll have a chance of, of healing it.
0: Hmm. Just for people listening because' I'm, as, I'm, as I'm listening to you speak, I'm feeling. Like an energy. like I'll just call it an energy. Okay. Like, I, for me, when I feel that, it's like my soul is like prickling, like agreeing, like, yes, this is this is real. So just for people who are listening, if you're having the same sensation, that's my interpretation of it. Like when I feel that, it's like something's really strongly resonating with me. I, I feel like that's my soul saying, listen to this. This is true. Um, the last thing I want to speak to you about, Russ, if it's okay, is yeah. to hear your story about um both your your dad if that's okay and then your experience with suicide as well sure and um if we can kind of then tie it all up with you speaking a lot about how blocking love is what leads to anxiety yeah so how you got to where you are today where you're at least starting to love yourself more and and let that love in um i think that'd be a perfect place to to finish on
1: yeah well my dad was very sick my dad had a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar and he just got worse and worse and worse as he got older. So around 12 years old is when I really started to see that he was not quite right. I had a, an, an instinct before that. And then he killed himself at 26. So, oh no, when I was 26, he killed himself. He was 52. So for me, there was this tremendous feeling of pain, but there's also this tremendous feeling of relief that his, his suffering was over because he was just, you know, just an incredible emotional pain day after day after day after day and then for me you know when I was in medical school and for me being a doctor meant the world to me Um, and a lot of that I think was ego based a lot of it was that I I didn't really feel like I was I was heard as a child and I thought if I was a doctor for one I would be able to you know push illness away which was weird Uh, but 2 I'd be I'd be listened to And I was, and I was listening to you. Like I'd see 35, 40 patients a day and everyone would say, thank you, Dr. Kennedy, and off they'd go. But it wasn't enough, you know, it just wasn't enough because again, I was, I was putting my energy into other people as opposed to putting it into myself. So eventually over the, uh, you know, the more I practiced, the longer I practiced, the more pain I would feel, the more alarm I would feel. So I missed my dad. I had a lot of guilt over the fact that he was gone and I was happy that he was gone mostly because he wasn't suffering anymore. But he would do things like call me at three o'clock in the morning and I'd have to go over there. And, you know, it was pretty painful for me. And so it was a relief when when he killed himself. But it was also a real, you know, devastating pain as well. So that mix that, you know, anxiety often starts because there's two different polarities. So on one hand, there was like, I was glad he was dead because he was suffering so much. And so were we. And the other one was, I really miss my dad. You know i really felt like i got cheated out of a father on a number of ways so with me i got to a point where i did lsd and ayahuasca and mdma and all that kind of stuff because not to get high but i really wanted to find where where this alarm was coming from at, at that time i called it anxiety where my anxiety was coming from and uh, i remember finishing uh ayahuasca two nights of ayahuasca and uh the most hands down, like, I don't recommend psychedelics to people. I, I I really don't. I said, do six months of somatic therapy. And then if you still want to do psychedelics, like go do them for there. But, uh, so I came back from ayahuasca and I was just a shell. Like I was just a ghost. And, uh, I remember just thinking there was no, there was none, nothing in me that I could hold on to. There was no grounding. I just felt like a ghost, like I was just sort of going through. I remember going out into the back with my son, my stepson, Michael, and just playing basketball and thinking, you know, this kid has no idea that I'm going to be dead tomorrow. You know, he's like laughing and throwing the ball back at me and that kind of stuff. He has no idea I'm going to be dead tomorrow. And just the pain of that, you know, so that's what suicide is. It's it's, suicide is not so much about, you know, uh, you want to kill yourself. It's just, you don't want to be there anymore. And there's just, but there's no other option. You know, on one hand, I don't want to leave my stepson and my daughter and all that stuff uh and on the other hand i can't stand this pain anymore so um it, it wound up passing like as, as time went by as i got farther away from the ayahuasca experience uh, it wound up sort of i, I started be, feeling my talons in the earth again and uh and that was the point where i was like okay i have to do something about this i've gotta i've gotta find a way of healing this because i did get some messages on ayahuasca and lsd and I've got to help other people understand exactly what this is because this is coming from my body. This isn't coming from my mind at all. And that's when I started looking into a different, you know, theories of, of anxiety and that kind of thing. And I couldn't really find much about alarm in the body. So I kind of made one up. And then mm-hmm. at that point thought, okay. And then, and then after that, as time went by, I thought, well, what if the alarm is actually my younger self asking for my attention? And then I keep shoving them away and that's why it's getting louder and louder. And that really helped as well. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just, uh, you know, I was doing breath work and yoga. I became a yoga and meditation teacher as well. Another one of my accomplishments. And then, uh, um, and then I just started to learn where, where is this alarm in my body? You know, and for me, it's in my solar plexus, it's purple, it's sharp, it's crystalline. It pushes up against my heart. um, And it goes into my back and it's like, okay, well, what if that's my younger self? So I just started kind of rubbing my hand over that area and, And it's like, it felt better. Like it just immediately kind of felt better. And then I just, everything else kind of expanded on top of that. And that was kind of like, okay, well, this is, this is kind of your purpose. You know, Russ, this is your purpose is to show people that, you know, through 30 years of anxiety, it really wasn't in your head at all. It was in your body. And how can you, and then I worked on ways of fixing it. And then of course I, I took trainings in somatic therapies, and my wife's a somatic trauma therapist, and, and I, I've adapted a, a kind of a, a version of SE, somatic experiencing, but it's also, I've, I've changed it quite a bit and um, put my own spin on it. And now I just sort of help people understand that, like what I sort, sort of you there is that how you get connected with that younger version of yourself Uh, because that's where that's where life is you know being connected to yourself like what did you do as a child for fun well i played guitar i I, I rode my bike so now i play guitar and ride my bike and uh and and when i do that i I take him along with me i say this is great isn't this great i'll go on the swings down the street uh, and i'll just like i'll swing with him and just the more connection i made the less my alarm went and on top of that i think the best feeling of all of that was that i For the first time in my life, I felt like I had some agency over this sense of alarm, this pain, because usually, you know, my anxiety was kind of like this eight hour panic attack every day. And I was just, I I was helpless. I would just have to wait until it ended, ostensibly because all the stress chemicals in my body had, had kind of worn themselves out. And then I would just repeat it every day after day after day, like Groundhog Day. But now I had this, this window into. I actually have some control over this. And as soon as you feel like you have some control and anxiety, a lot of the anxiety alarm will disappear because much of it is because you just feel like you're completely out of control, which is probably what happened when, you know, I was eight or nine, 10 years old. So um, as far as the suicide, I haven't really had that feeling anymore. Once I started getting connected to my real self and felt grounded, because the more connected you are to your real self, I feel like you just hold the ground tighter. Like I get like Eagle talents. Like I feel like I hold the ground tighter. So, and then that's been my purpose, is to sort of help other people understand this, the way we've been trying to heal anxiety has been backwards. You know, we've been trying to go through the mind to heal the body, the effects of the body, instead of going through the body to, to, to heal the effects of the mind. And that's why I wrote the book. And that's why I'm trying to sort of move myself out there. And I know it's a, a, a sort of atypical counterintuitive theory, and it's taking a while to take hold. But like you, you know, people feel it. They feel it. Like this mm-hmm. is something, actually, this is different. This is different than I've felt before. So I think it's really important to to really address that. So I don't know if that answered your question, but that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of yeah, where I really I'm at because this is my, this is myself. I'm, I'm, I really do love helping people and I don't want people to have to suffer like I did. And I wish I knew what I, what I, I know now 30 years ago it would have made my life completely different, but. I wouldn't be helping people today the way I I am now if I knew then. So
0: yeah, no, thank you, Ross. That's amazing. It certainly feels like your purpose. So where can people find more? They can get the book, talk to me about the book. And then if people want to even do sessions with you, like can they do them remotely and
1: yeah, I I do them remotely. As far as that goes, um, takes about 90 minutes and that kind of thing too. And, um, basically if you, if you read the book first, you'll get a lot more out of the session. Uh, But you don't have to, like, you don't have to, like a lot of people will, you know, I have so many people say, you know, I've done therapy for 15 years and I've learned more in the last 90 minutes, you know, (laughs) than I have in the last 15 years. So yeah, any, my brand is the anxiety MD. So YouTube, Instagram, basically, if you just, you know, Google the anxiety MD and you'll get my website there too. And that's the easiest way to find me. I make, um, hypno meditations as well for people with anxiety and panic attacks that you listen to every day. That include brainwave and and technology and that kind of thing that helps people and i really sometimes have a hard time with charging people money for what i do um, because i just feel like it's just my purpose but i also know if i can make some money i can actually get my word out to more people mm-hmm. so so on my website i have some stuff there that is it's cheap it's like 15 bucks or eight pounds or whatever um, and You listen to it every day, and and it make it does make a difference. It does start connecting you with that younger version of yourself, and you just sort of feel more resilient in general. I have mm-hmm. courses on there as well. Um, they're time consuming, and uh, um, but they're they're really good if you're really if you're really looking for something to do, it really helps. But just get the book. And, you know, it's it's thirteen pounds or something like that, and it it will really make a lot of sense, especially if you had trauma in your childhood. It'll make a lot of sense as to why you feel the way you feel as I, I get messages from people every day saying you know it just the book has just really made me understand why you know why i worry you know what what support that it does yeah and uh you know that's basically what it comes down to is just understanding where things where things start and how you can have some agency over healing so the anxiety MV is always the easiest way to find me
0: amazing yeah it's absolutely it's, it's fantastic so thank you so much again I'm looking forward That's to speaking right. to you. Yeah, uh, sure we'll yeah. do our
1: own session and it'll it'll blow your mind for sure.
0: Yeah, no I'm looking forward to it and it's my absolute pleasure to share your message on Take Flight. Um and yeah, consciousness will repay you financially because <laughs> Oh yeah. Yes, you, I'm, not, I'm not I'm not worried. You
1: know, I I live in a place two blocks on the beach in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada uh you know we're two you know we're also five minutes from the forest you know i have everything i need Amazing. i just really want to get this word out because it is so counterintuitive mm-hmm. and it's just it's just so helpful for it was just it really saved my life and 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 i hope it saves other people's lives too
0: yeah thanks ross i'm going to click stop on the recording okay. and we'll say goodbye sure. after that but Yeah, look, thank you so much for doing it no
1: problem thank you